Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast, In Good Company. I'm Nicola Tangen, the CEO of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. In this podcast, I talk to the leaders of some of the largest companies we are invested in so that you can learn what we own and meet these impressive leaders. Today, I'm speaking to Lars Frugard Jorgensen, the CEO of Nordo Nordisk, the second largest pharma company in the world. Lars is a bit like a quiet assassin, really, really impressive. Nova's goal is to defeat some of the biggest health challenges the world is facing, such as obesity. We own almost 2% of Novo Nordisk, translating into 57 billion kroner or almost 6 billion US dollars. This was a truly amazing conversation. Stay tuned. So Lars, uh, very welcome to the podcast. Novo Nordisk uh, has got an unrivaled reputation worldwide, so it's fantastic to have you on. Thank you, Nikolai. It's an honor to be here. Now, I thought I'd kick off on obesity because it's such a big problem. And um, it's tripled since 75. More than 1 billion people uh, are obese. And um, I read somewhere that it now accounts for nearly the cost of obesity, uh, nearly accounts for 3% of world GDP. Now, what are the drivers behind this? It's interesting to reflect on obesity and the fact that it's now being recognized as a disease, not among all, but increasingly. And uh, until now, there has not been, been real efficacious medicine. And when you don't have efficacious medicine, often the medical community is not uh, highly engaged in a, in a disease. So what's happening now is that we acknowledge that it's not just about lifestyle, it's not just about how much we eat. It's actually about genetics, that different people are uh, in different uh, situations from a physiology point of view. And it really takes uh, you know, help for those uh, uh, people. So that's what's now opening up the whole market. Uh, we've been researching in this for 25 years uh, at a time where most felt that obesity is a graveyard. It's not a place to go. Uh, so we're really excited to see that now there's hope for, for many of those people who have been struggling, uh, keeping weight down for, for many the whole life. Would you say it's mainly an illness or a lifestyle problem? I think it's, it's a combination. It's a very complex disease. Uh, we know that nowadays it has become very easy to get access to, to food, often processed food. We live uh, in ways where we're not uh, expending as much energy as we used to. And then if you are genetically disposed to uh, to store fat, so to say, uh, you will be storing fat. And that is seen from your body's point of view, a sign of health. Uh, so it's really difficult to reverse when we become bigger, so to say, because it's seen as, as a way to protect you uh, and prepare you for difficult times. Um, so it, of course, it's, it's a complex uh, matter. We also know that some do not put on weight uh, some stay lean their whole life, almost no matter what they do, whereas others, they, they store fat and they gain, gain weight. Uh, so it's, it's not one or the other. It's actually a complex disease that are, that there are many factors at play. How are the demographics changing this? You can say when I was, uh, when I was born, uh, the world population was probably a, a couple of billion. Uh, now we're approaching uh, 8 billion we live longer and longer, and uh, and uh, wealth today and price of food means that even in the developing countries, you can 
uh, access foods and calories in a way uh, where uh, you didn't have to, you know, you didn't, you did, you don't have to work that long to be able to buy uh, unhealthy food. So, so wealth and demographics uh, actually plays in here, and uh, we see it as a, as a problem that's uh, hitting all uh, all societies, uh, mm. both uh, the Western world and uh, and also the emerging uh, countries. Yeah, because historically it was a high income um, problem, right? But now it's widened out. Yeah, and uh, some of the uh, worst foods in in this world to uh, to buy, so to say, are really really inexpensive. And in big cities where you end up spending a lot of time commuting forth and back to to go to work, often uh, the time available for actually cooking a healthy meal uh, is very limited, and it also uh, often ends up costing more to actually do the healthy choice compared to the uh, less less healthy choice. Mm. Where so, does so, the lifestyle, socioeconomic conditions, uh, societal structures, together with genetics, uh, plays in? Mm. Where does childhood obesity come in? Yeah, that's kind of the alarming thing that we see now that childhood obesity is is growing significantly. And we know that if you already as a child have been uh, living with obesity, uh, there is a big risk that you'll actually uh, be struggling with that your whole life. There's also a big risk that you'll uh, be, say, stigmatized. You will get, uh, say, lower degree of education. Your your lifetime income level will be uh, be be lower, so it's a it's a very large societal uh, challenge uh, to to deal with, and of course with when we talk about uh, children, um, I still think there's an opportunity to uh, to focus on prevention, making sure that school systems, uh, how we organize societies, uh, is designed in a way that we can prevent uh, childhood obesity, with the aim of then also reducing. Uh, obesity as an adult. But when adults like you and I, we become obese, uh, it becomes much harder because then you're starting to uh, to see it as, as a chronic disease and it becomes really, really difficult to reverse. Yeah, I saw that uh, only 1% uh, of obese people get back to um, healthy body weight. So uh, certainly it doesn't look so good for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, um, you have the kind of solution here, right? With your uh, with your drugs, and you were the first uh, pharma company, I think, actually, to have a product which went uh, viral on social media on uh, on TikTok, helped by Elon Musk. So, um, tell us about your drug here. Yes, yeah, so we have uh, been focused on uh, diabetes for a hundred years now. We're celebrating our one hundred uh, anniversary this year, and in that, uh, you know, in those efforts, we come across this uh, GLP one uh, mechanism which uh, works in a way where it reduces glucose level when it's too high, and then it stops working when you have brought down the glucose level. When we took it into clinical development, we realized that it's actually a mechanism that has uh, a number of benefits on different uh, biologies. And it also turns out that it works uh, in a way where it can be used in obesity. It, uh, For instance, it reduces the, the appetite, so it makes you feel uh, full, uh, which is obviously... A, a key benefit when you when you want to address uh, obesity. So, some probably 15, 20, 15 to twenty years back, we had to make a choice whether we actually wanted to take it into uh, obesity research. 
And it was actually a, a tough discussion because back then we knew that most obesity medicines actually had failed in the marketplace. Uh, some of them had turned out to have uh, some side effects that were not acceptable and uh, products had to be withdrawn from the market. So we had this situation where we had something we knew was a safe and efficacious product in, in diabetes, a big business opportunity. And did we really dare to take it into obesity? But we back then felt that if it actually works in obesity, we need to create those data. We need to demonstrate to the world that opportunity because obesity is a leading cause of type 2 diabetes. So it will actually prevent the disease that uh, we are put in the world to, to deal with. So we, we, uh, we took the chance and uh, it turned out that the first molecule uh, reduced uh, weight by some 6-7-8%, some got to 10%. Uh, that was actually what good looked like uh, back then. Uh, we took it to market and we saw some uptake, but it was not something that really opened the obesity market. Then we explored a second generation a type 2, uh, type two uh, GLP-1 mechanism, which was uh, prolonged its, in its action profile. So it was a weekly uh, medicine. So the GLP-1 circulated, say, in the body uh, for a week. And that proved to be uh, even more efficacious glucose-lowering agent. Uh, it also proved to have uh, a significant risk in cardiovascular disease. And we then also tested it in, in obesity. And there we saw that patients lost some, uh, say, 16, 17, 18 percent uh, uh, weight loss and, and a significant part also more than 20 percent. And that was really what, uh, say, created a, a change in the marketplace because if you can get to that level of weight loss, you're redefining, uh, you know, what the individual patient feels uh, about being obese. And you also, <clears throat> from a medical point of view, really generating uh, a weight loss that's really interesting for, from the medical community. And that's what now has, you know, opened up and created this very, very uh, significant uptake we see. How do you make sure that only the people who really need it get it? Yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the challenges uh, we are dealing with because obviously weight is, uh, is a significant issue uh, for many people. Um, these products are... Uh, injectable products, they require a, a physician that makes a, a script. So you have to talk to your to your doctor. We communicate to the doctors uh, how to use uh, the products, what's the mechanisms, what are some of the, uh, say, safety concerns uh, that takes that you have to start patients in, in, the, in the right and compliant way. So we have a keen focus on that. Uh, but also clear that when you bring a product with these uh, characteristics, it takes a lot of attention and you also have a lot of uh, activity on social media, which is uh, difficult for us to, to, to control because we cannot. Uh, so we are, of course, doing whatever we can do to make sure that it's established as a medical condition. It's the patients with uh, a high BMI uh, as what is uh, indicated on the, on the label that's getting the products. Uh, but but it is a difficult uh, say uh, it is difficult setting uh, to to manage uh, fully. How do you um, how do you balance making profits uh, with actually helping people around the world? Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the uh, one of the other challenges we are, we are working on, and you can say uh, to 
to take the risks we take to spend, say, a quarter of a century in researching in, for instance, obesity or, or curing diabetes with stem cells, that takes a very, very, say, strong balance sheet. It takes that you can shoulder the risks of the failures. But so, so that's, you know, that's a platform for future innovation. But of course, we only succeed if we really get the innovation to patients. So last year, we, we served uh, 40 million patients. Uh, so we keep adding more and more patients to those we serve. But 40 million is still a very, very small fraction of the numbers we spoke about. There's uh, more than 500 million people living with, with diabetes. So in the eye of society, you could say that we have failed because we have not yet reached uh, more of those patients. So we try to, uh, across the world, uh, have affordability options for those uh, who are um, the most vulnerable. That ranges from the you know highest GDP country uh, uh, like like the US, where uh, last year, as an example, sixty three thousand Americans got free insulin from no noise. So if you fall between the cracks of of the US healthcare system, we pick up the bill. In uh, if you live as a child in in Africa or other uh, low income settings, we have a, a cap price of a vial of insulin uh, at a few dollars uh, in in uh, in the low and middle income countries. So that brings down the daily treatment cost uh, to say ten cents or something like that, which is actually quite inexpensive. But if if there's no cool chain, if there's no healthcare infrastructure. Uh, it, it's not enough just to have inexpensive medicine uh, because the markup in, in just transportation in, uh, say, in Africa be, can be higher than the drug cost. Mm. Uh, now, so we, are, we, are, you know, we, are, we are shareholders, so we want you to make money. And actually, uh, uh, each Norwegian owns the equivalent of 10,000 kroners worth of Novashare. So it's a, a very big holding for us. But is there a way to get uh, pharma prices down and volumes up in a, in a bigger way, like in a proper shift yeah if you look at it um one could say that uh, generic companies who produce uh, big volumes inexpensively should be uh, getting uh, products out to many more patients but actually they they do not because they they serve established markets so to really get to many more patients you need to develop infrastructure and need to develop markets um and uh, and there is a limitation uh, to to how products are adopted um, in in say lower income settings because healthcare is, is less advanced advanced. So it's 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 as much about building capacity. Mm. How do you now see um, the development in the U.S. versus Europe for the pharma industry? In the U.S., you have a market structure which is basically driven by say private healthcare. Um, and it's funded via insurance schemes where employers or the government buy insurance scheme and then you have private, say, healthcare uh, delivery in, in most cases. So that creates a, a, a market that's very open for innovation uh, because if you're an employer and you have employees uh, in your staff, uh, you would like that population to be as, as healthy as possible, have a high health resilience. So that leads to adoption of uh, of innovation. And then you can scale quickly in the US if you have innovation, but you also have uh, very quick erosion 
when uh, when you have loss of exclusivity and competition comes in. Um, and then the government is trying to make healthcare reforms, trying to uh, mitigate some of the downsides of of this uh, rather complex private healthcare uh, system. Another key element of the U.S. market is that there's a big venture uh, capital uh, focus on 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 uh, on biotech and uh, translating science from academia into companies, and that's sourcing. Uh, you know that's creating a, a source of innovation for the industry. So there is a very, very strong ecosystem for life science in the U.S. If you compare that to Europe, it's unfortunately much less attractive. Uh, there is much le- less capital in the venture uh, side of of uh, funding uh, innovation to be established in biotech. So you see much fewer biotechs. You also see that it takes much longer time to get products approved. Uh, by the European Medicines Agency. And after that, uh, we have to go country by country to seek uh, reimbursement. And now, uh, recently, the EU Commission uh, is still not officially uh, posted, but there's been a a leaked uh, policy proposal where they actually make, say, uh, data protection even shorter. So we run the risk of making drug development in Europe uh, even less attractive so I'm very concerned that uh, innovation will move out of, of Europe. I'm very concerned that European citizens will have lack of access or much lower access to uh, to some of the new medicines. And that creates less economic activity for the industry in Europe. So I think that's a lose, 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 less, uh, less health benefit for patients, uh, healthcare systems that are more uh, challenged because you are not getting the benefit of the medicines. And you have less economic activity, so less tax payments in Europe. Uh, so it, when when Europeans get into regulating uh, for the benefit of health and then actually doing it by destroying, say, conditions for industry, uh, I think it's a it's a big it's a big uh, issue that we that I'm working hard to uh, to address. Yeah, when you add together your um, your arguments, Harry, it sounds pretty. Uh... Seriously worrisome, right? So, are you going to become more of an American company than Lars? Uh, we, you can say we are uh, very much an American company. Uh, you know, between maybe around forty-five percent of our business is in the U.S. We have uh, research in the U.S. We have manufacturing in the U.S. Um, but we are a global company. We also do research manufacturing uh, elsewhere. Uh, but it's clear that if you look at uh, our latest obesity innovation. That was launched in the U.S. first, and uh, and now we are in Denmark and uh, Norway, 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 our two home countries, um, and Europe will come, you know, down the road. And this is the general picture that uh, medicines are launched the first in the U.S., and when there is capacity, uh, say Europe is being considered. I think that's that's a problem uh, because uh, I think if you take obesity, that's going to turn into the medical intervention with the highest return on society because if you can prevent uh, type 2 diabetes, if you can prevent a number of cardiovascular diseases, if you can prevent a number of, of cancer, forms, cancer forms, etc., that's a very, very big benefit for the individual, but also for the healthcare system in terms of avoiding cost and also making our, our populations more and more productive at a time where we have aging populations and in Europe and elsewhere 
we have a smaller and smaller, say, population of active uh, people to actually uh, support that. Uh, so I think there's a lot of, at play here that we have to get right in Europe uh, as we transform uh, to, say, a new, say, geopolitical context uh, where there are a lot of, of threats on the horizon, so to say. But what, but what exactly can you do to change the development and to try to level the playing field? So the pharmaceutical uh, industry has actually proposed in Europe that because the, the aim of the uh, commission is to make sure that all Europeans will have access to latest innovation. And uh, as an industry, we support that, obviously. We want all to have access. We don't want to force people to take our medicines, but we want all to be able to have the chance to consider whether you, country by country, want to adopt this innovation. So we have uh, actually committed to make it very transparent that for all our new products, where are we in the regulatory approval process? So country by country, uh, where are we in, in getting it to market? Some countries decide not to uh, reimburse it. Some countries uh, say that uh, until it's uh, launched in, in these four countries, we are not going to start the process of assessing it. Then we're also saying that we will actually support selling at differentiated pricing levels linked to purchase power of the individual country. So if you live in, in Romania and have lower, say, uh, GDP per capita, price uh, can be lower. And we commit to actually uh, strive towards uh, bringing uh, products to the market within two years in, in all countries. So that's actually the first time the industry has come forward with a solution that's actually addressing the political wish of uh, giving all the opportunity to uh, to access the latest innovation. And we think that's a better solution than starting to deteriorate, say, industry conditions, where the, 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 the uh, at least the leak proposal indicates that unless we have launched in all 27 member countries, we'll actually have a reduced uh, say, period of data protection down to six years. And many products takes more than six years to recoup the investment. Uh, and that means that if you have that uncertainty whether you will actually have a longer data protection period, which you will not know until you have launched and negotiated country by country, if you have to deal with that risk upfront, many countries will opt out to of actually developing that uh, opportunity. And we take the risk as an industry. We spend all the money in developing the data. And then we actually offer society the opportunity to assess whether you want to use a medicine or not. But if the conditions are such that we never get to take the risk, we don't create that opportunity for society. So I think it's a very, uh, you know, it's a flawed logic to actually do, say, industrial, uh, say, uh, policy change to achieve the aim of, uh, of health benefit uh, uh, for, for all Europeans. Changing tack a bit. Now, you, have, you talked about um, uh, different countries. You have lived in uh, the Netherlands, US, Japan. How do you see the differences between these cultures? And do you have different type of corporate cultures within Novo? So there are these differences uh, among uh, national cultures. And it was interesting when I worked in the Netherlands, there were actually some tensions between uh, headquarters and, and, the, and the Dutch team. And often Denmark and the Netherlands are compared as very, very similar. But uh, I, was, I was relative uh, young back then, and I still remembered what I, what I learned in, in business school, 
And there we had one topic on on cultural differences uh, between uh, countries. And I remember a book by uh, Gert Hofstede actually talking to how you can measure different cultures on, I think it's seven dimensions. And power distance was one dimension. And it turns out that the power distance in Denmark is very, very low. So basically, you can just walk into the bus's office and you know start arguing with the bus. Whereas in the in the Netherlands, it's it's there's a higher power distance, so the bus is the bus, and, and and perhaps even more so in France and Germany, right? Exactly. So so sometimes the Dutch team would would come to a meeting in Denmark and uh, be seen as arrogant because here comes a person you think is just like you because Denmark and and the Netherlands are often compared, but then because of this. Uh, national trait of of having a higher power distance, they show up a bit more self confident, but that was perceived as arrogant. So I actually uh, made a small slide as an opening slide whenever the Dutch team came and told us, "Okay, we look the same, but on, on this dimension, our national cultures are different." So I, I just wanted to say that if we if we come across as a bit arrogant, it's not because we are not respecting you; it's because of our national culture. And, and when you travel around the world, you find that Americans have certain traits, Japanese uh, quite different traits. Japanese are very consensus-based. You run a very long discussion. If the manager starts by saying what he or she believes, the team would not disagree. So we have to invite for a discussion, say that there are different ways forward here. I would like the team to to discuss what could options be. And then you kind of, there's a Japanese word for binding the roots. So you bind the roots behind a decision. But then when you have made it, you can make sure that it's implemented exactly as you have agreed. So so selling in the idea is part of the process. Um, if you in the US start by saying, you know, I'm the manager, I'm very much in doubt. Uh, what should we do? Then Americans would say, okay, what kind of manager are you? Uh, what do you believe believe in? So. So you can you can say you know in one we want to have respect, and we want to respect differences, but you have to show it in different ways based on that underlying national culture. So so that's uh, so I think we can still have the same Nordic way, but uh, you know showing respect in different ways based on that national underlying culture. So you uh, you now run the second largest pharma company in the world, and uh, Novo accounts for ten percent of Danish GDP. So how do you make sure that you stay grounded? I'm uh, I'm uh, born as a very grounded individual, uh, and that that helps. Uh, I have uh, people around me who who reminds me that I'm just uh, a hired hand uh, and don't think too much of myself. And you grew up on a farm, right? I grew up on a farm, um, and that also helps you uh, being grounded. But there's this thing in Denmark, this uh, yander law, that you're not supposed to show off. Um, Maybe we do show off a bit more in Copenhagen than in the rest of Denmark. Uh, we are accused of doing that. But being a large company in Denmark also creates an opportunity to get uh, close to to the decision makers. Um, being a small company uh, country also means that we can actually uh, work together and collaborate in private-public partnerships that uh, can actually showcase the world how you can tackle societal challenges. So when the government asks me to lead a change initiative, uh, I step up, uh, I mobilize the company, and together with uh, ministries, municipalities, regions in Denmark, academic institutions, we actually try to deal with, for instance, obesity as a societal channel, uh, acknowledging that uh, 
if we succeed in uh, preventing in, in school systems, uh, we take a burden away from the individual, we take a burden away from, from the healthcare system. Mm, mm. Very interesting. It ties in with your long-term thinking. And um, Novo has been a business for 100 years, yet you only ever had five CEOs. It's kind of incredible, right? And I think the only other company I, that comes to mind would be L'Oreal uh, in Paris. What are the what are the advantages of having this uh, longevity? When you look at our uh, business cycles, uh, which is based on innovation, it takes 10, 20 years to develop uh, medicines. So you can say the positive cycle we are in now, uh, that's fueled by what prior generation of, uh, of leaders and employees in Illinois developed. So that means that uh, you know, I, can, I can look good based on that. But my real contribution is actually what the next generation of leaders will be uh, bringing to to patients. So having that very long perspective, what are we? What are the what are the sources of innovation? How should the company look like, say in ten twenty years? That's that's my key focus. Uh, while doing that, of course, there are a lot of uh, important uh, aspects to handle right now: uh, ramping up supplies getting commercial tactics right, develop the obesity market and all of that. Uh, but really setting us up for sustainable growth in, in decades to come is, uh, is important. And there it makes sense to have a really, really long uh, focus, uh, which jives with also our ownership structure of having a foundation controlling the shares of no noise, not uh, having more than 25% of, of the shares approximately, but but uh, say majority control via more votes per share, hmm. which uh, is a really interesting Danish um, ownership structure. But knowing that perhaps you'll um, hang in there for twenty years, I mean, how do you when you, don't you wake up in the morning and think, "Gee, I'm going to be in this hamster wheel for another you know fifteen years"? I mean, isn't that a bit de- depressing? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, I don't have much to compare with because I've been with the company for for thirty two years. So for me. You know, I'm the first one in my family who's not a farmer, uh, but all my, all my, you know, uh, ancestors on both my mother's and my father's side, they kind of lived on the farm. So they had the same, you know, every day you wake up and you run the farm and you do that until you pass it on to the next generation. So in a way, I'm So, be, so being in the hamster wheel is a family thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, this, this, the thing about farming is that you, you, you make, you know, you put some seeds in the ground, you, you nurture it, and if you're lucky, because you're also up against uh, nature and biology, then you can also uh, do a good uh, harvest. Uh, so, so for me, that's, uh, you can say, living the purpose, and it's a huge uh, privilege. And then, of course, I have to organize myself in a way that, uh, you know, it doesn't uh, come across as being in a hamster wheel, but actually uh, a fun exercise. Very interesting. Now, um how do you make decisions? Are you uh, you you come across as a as a very analytical person? Are you um, are you analyzing all kinds of things to death, or are you do you believe in pattern recognition and gut feel? Have you got gut feel? Yeah, I'm a I'm a sensor, so I I, I pick up a lot of uh, impressions. Um, I try to talk to uh, you know our stakeholders, uh, employees, uh, our scientists, and I, and I form my views. Um, and of course, we also need to do business cases and a lot of analysis. And when we 
look to acquire technology or a pipeline asset, we have to somehow assess that market opportunity. But I might also say that there are a lot of biases. Uh, if you look at how we uh, we saw obesity, we were biased by uh, the relative modest uptake of the prior generation product and didn't see the inflection point. Uh, so it's a combination you need to to really understand uh, the fundamentals. Uh, and that's about, you know, I'm not a scientist, so but there's something about believing in some core capabilities really understanding what are our unique strongholds. And when we tend to double down on that, even though it looks difficult, we tend to succeed. Um, now we are operating with more uncertainty from a geopolitical uh, perspective. And uh, I think what has happened in the world over the past few years, that nobody had given more than a very remote likelihood uh, of probability, it means that we have to plan in in ways that are not, say, linear uh, in its think thinking, but it's more based on some fundamental beliefs. So, so I'm, a, you know, a, a collector of impressions. I sense things, and then I try to write down some core beliefs about what do we really believe in. And most of my decisions are based on some really fundamental core beliefs about the future. Um, and then, of course, I have many people working. Uh, who do more of the, say, detailed planning, and then you you test uh, some of these core beliefs up, up, uh, up against the detailed plans and and a, a conclusion is created. That's so interesting. What's the What do you think is the one key to being a good sensor? Um, being curious, uh, being... Uh, avoid getting to conclusions too quickly. So... People tell me that it's difficult to give me negative feedback because I react, my body language starts reacting. So I actually share with people that I really appreciate feedback also when it goes against what I typically believe in, but give me some time to digest it because uh, I take it, you know, I just mentioned that this is like my farm. Uh, this is my, <laughs> uh, this is who I am. So something that's negative around no orders, you know, it hits me. So it's really important for me that I'm not judgmental, that I'm really curious, that I'm really open. So I get all the impressions, also those that maybe go against what we are doing right now. Um, if you become too too stubborn, too fixed on, 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 uh, on, on your past decisions, so to say, you are starting to, to narrow the option space and you start getting blinded and uh, say one bad decision might be followed by another one. So it's really being curious, really being, you know, slightly paranoid and, uh, you know, use your own doubts to fuel curiosity and get to know more. And of course, it's uh, it's harder to be in doubt than to be, uh, you know, firm because when you're firm, life becomes easier. But there is a risk that you are heading in, in the wrong direction. So I, I spend a lot of time speculating and being in doubt and that leads to asking questions, being curious. And the ambiguity, uh, I think, is important. But then, of course, you also need to come to act and make a choice. So my team also knows that when certain time has passed, I become very fixed on what we have to do. And I'm very, very difficult. Uh, it's very, very difficult to persuade me to do something else. So really curious until that, that decisive moment where everybody understands, okay, now I, you know, I crossed the line. 
and now it's in motion and there's no way back which can also be a bit dangerous at times but uh, it's important <laughs> to go from reflection to to decision We have thousands of uh, young people listening in. What would be your advice to young people today? My advice would be to uh, think non-linear around your career because uh, we are working in ways today that is much more demanding compared to when I joined the workforce. Uh, most people are within one meter of their cell phone all the time, so this is always on. Um is is a really big uh, threat for our cognitive capacity. Um, many young people have also more holistic career uh, aspirations or say life aspirations. You want to have you know a family life, you want to uh, you know raise a family, you want to uh, contribute in different ways. So when I joined the company, uh, and if you look at my career, it has been relative linear. I had one uh, one opportunity to actually leave Norway for two months between two jobs when I moved back from Japan to Denmark. I took a two-month break with my family and traveled. I think we need to find ways to have non-linear careers and take career breaks and do different things throughout our career to stay creative and not end up being in this hamster wheel you you alluded to before because we are we're going to burn out our brains if... Mm if people work with intensity like we work today. And sometimes maybe also shifting to another role in a different function, take a, a step down in your career and uh, get to ne- learn a new uh, new area. So take breaks, travel, learn new things. Yeah. So uh, society is changing a lot. And I think as a company, we need to also create the opportunities for, for young people to both do fantastic uh, achievements uh, in a company, but also find ways that you can actually take a break recharge, explore something else, and then actually come back with new impressions, new energy, new perspectives uh, on the world. Mm. Well, that's a wonderful place to um, to end. Um, you are a very, very impressive CEO and running a most incredible company. So a big thanks for, for being on and um, big thanks for making the world a better place. Thank you, Nikolai, for the opportunity to have a, a good discussion here today. And thank you also to what you do because I think you're also trying to define you know, stewardship. Uh, and it's also important to have shareholders who actually uh, have, say, a broad agenda, uh, because you know ESG is being debated these uh, times, uh, and it's important that shareholders also step in and articulate, I think, the holistic uh, ownership uh, agenda. So thanks for doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was... Um... That was really, really nice. Thank you.